1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Preparing herself to get cracking on the festive cheese board is Thea Lenaduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello. We do record these things. I've worked it out. We often don't have lunch. Mm. And then we record them. Well, that's so, why
2: we talk about food all the time. Is what it is? Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm not su- as obsessed as I may seem.
1: Really? Do you subscribe to the view you shouldn't shop while hungry? So, well, it depends on
2: whether you're on a budget, because if you're on a budget, that'll go out the window. Yeah, or on a like, diet. Oh, and that and that and yeah.
1: that. You think you should be calm and rational when you're shopping?
2: I think so. I mean, I think the, probably the best thing to do is make a list, isn't it? And stick to it religiously.
1: You know, since they have delivery of food, I've stopped going. To, do you go? Do you have the food delivered?
2: We get a, a box of vegetables. delivered. Oh, you do that, do we, you? Yeah, from a farm just down the road, and so you just have to cook what you're given.
1: Yeah, I found um, that dispiriting. I used to throw stuff away. Oh
2: no, I'm militant, so we have to use every so single. So you're constantly making like
1: okra soup and stuff like. Just that, weird
2: combinations. Like, I cook. I cook very differently now to how I cooked a year ago when I didn't do the. Is there not stuff box? that you just
1: think I don't really like that I don't want well, to? you help. can
2: opt out of certain things. But yeah. you end up getting odd ingredients that you wouldn't normally use. Like I mean, what? I used to cook so many things with tomato and aubergine, which isn't exactly indigenously British, no. is it? So now I'm I, I, just having lots of turnip, really, and potato. And <laughs> cabbage. Sounds, got,
1: yeah. Sounds <laughs> kind of bleak, doesn't it, when you put, when you put it that way? I don't know about you, but I've always felt, this is an advert for you, a year's subscription to the TLS would make a lovely Christmas present. So if you're thinking of what to give this year, I would recommend that. And your tweets and emails about where you listen to this podcast, they keep piling in. We do enjoy them, don't we, Thea? We do. I've got a couple here. Dale tells us that he tunes in while walking my hound dog Lily in Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. As we stand on a footbridge, a great blue heron emerges under our feet, flying upstream above the water beautifully put and sean is in that neck of the woods too he listens while falling asleep in northwest dc a mere three miles from the white house and its addled dangerous occupant it feels like receiving news of the resistance from inside the palace thanks for keeping the cultural barricades fortified
2: We've also had an email from John Language, who claims to be our highest altitude listener. Have go I told on. you about him? Yeah, yeah, yeah go so on. So he says he listens to the podcast at 3,500 metres in the highlands of Lesotho in South Africa. So
1: the challenge goes out. So the <laughs> thing to beat is 3,500 metres. We will take depth, though, as well. So the lowest and highest What
2: listener. extremes of temperature? I'd be yeah. quite interested to I hear think, about those as I well. I think
1: mundane or extreme is really what we <laughs> interested in. And Thea, you were interested in Hannah Tame, of the National Maritime Museum archives. She has tweeted an update. She used to listen while retrieving manuscripts, which is quite a tls thing to do. She's now at the Church of England archives.
2: I mean, the same question goes, what's going on there, Hannah? (laughs) Strike up a correspondence. Another,
1: yeah, in the occasional series of what Hannah Tame is doing in the archives.
2: (laughs) Various places. We'll
1: continue to give you updated. Anyway, do keep them coming. This week, we will consider the curious world of Samuel Pepys and John Evelyn, two friends from the 17th century. Thankfully, we have the brilliant Ruth Skir as a guide. And we will also, in a typically abrupt shift of focus, ponder the whale. Why are we so keen on this killer? Lucy Atkins has some answers.
2: Thrasher, blackfish, sea wolf, killer, demon from hell... These are just some of the names that have been attached to Orcinus orca, the killer whale. In Naturalis Historia, Pliny the Elder described the whale in what might be the orca's earliest literary outing as an enormous mass of flesh armed with teeth. In short, the orca has not always been the cuddly black and white cultural icon that it is today. The supposedly gentle giant we fell for, for example, in 1993's film Free Willy. More on which in a moment. Ah. Indeed, according to Lucy Atkins in her review of Jason M. Colby's book Orca, How We Came to Know and Love the Ocean's Greatest Predator, the transformation from demon dolphin to friendly orca happened a while before that film. And in just 20 years, in fact, from 1962 to 1982, whole centuries of bad press were undone. How so and why? Lucy Atkins is here to tell us more. Hello, Lucy. Hello. So the story of the Orcas' transformation, it's it's not a gradual thing, really. I mean, there's a kind of a pivotal period, this shift in man's relationship with the whale in the 60s. And there are some specific dates to pin the narrative to as well. So let's start with 1964. What happened there? So in 1964... Somebody harpooned an orca,
3: kind of by accident, up in British Columbia and brought it in. And they decided to try and keep it for a bit. And at that point, everyone thought killer whales were the demon of the sea. They thought they were going to get eaten. And they so put there, this there was no
1: objection to whale hunting then? There wasn't much of a...
3: On the contrary, people were sort of encouraged to fishermen were encouraged to take out guns and shoot them and um, in the pacific northwest we 're talking about yeah. um, the u s Navy actually boasted about blowing them up with explosives, and you know it was a kind of get the beast
1: a bit like we mentality. are on wolves in, in on land that there was a period where people just yeah. to sort of, yeah. p- annihilate them yeah. yeah,
3: so it was all, yeah it was all about this appalling predator who got in the way of and threatened fishermen and needed to be. Machetted or, or gunned down and so they brought this whale in and they nicknamed it in a sort of ironic way They they called it Moby Doll and Moby Doll turned out not to be savage or demonic but really rather sweet and docile and placid and they all kind of decided that they quite liked Moby Doll but unfortunately Moby Doll then started to get horribly sick because she was being kept in
2: the wrong kind of Water. This was because Ted Griffin, is it, who, who, who founded the Seattle Aquarium? He got involved. He kind of spied an opportunity, yes. paid an astonishing amount of money, like $70,000 yes. for...
3: Not, I believe, for Moby Doll. So oh, OK. So Ted was down in Seattle. He was setting up an aquarium. He was obsessed with the water. He was one of the first people to have an aqualung. He was mm. into Jacques Cousteau. He was, a, he was a sort of slightly maverick character. And he was out... I think he was out sort of paddling around or something and met some killer whales and had this moment, this transformative moment where a killer whale went underneath his boat and turned around and looked up at him as it went under and their eyes met. Mm. And he saw into the soul of this creature and realised, you know, this isn't a terrible demonic killer. This is something deeply fascinating. And after that, he really wanted one. And then he did manage to get one. I think it was his one was caught by accident. And he took it in and made it a, made it an attraction.
1: Were they known as really um, clever then? Because the idea nobody, of the clever whale is that that's more recent than that.
3: Yeah, nobody knew anything about them. They thought they were savage and were going to try and kill them. And it was really once basically Ted and the Moby Doll situation started to. What happened was in in sort of business terms, they realised the public was really interested yeah. in this massive, great, big thing and would flock to see it. So they were one eye on the business thinking we could make an awful lot of money out of this black and white thing and one eye on sort of trying to you know, these, these guys were genuinely really interested, they really wanted to know nobody knew anything about them they were sort of realising very quickly that you could form a bond, you know, almost like a dog you could sort of yeah. you know, form a relationship with this animal, so in the early 60s it kicked off a huge explosion of captures because dollar signs, Ted spent something like, I can't remember what it was, $70,000 getting hold of one, and that proved to be lucrative. So after that, it was a kind of free-for-all in the Pacific Northwest with kind of, I mean, it was the most macho <laughs> thing. You could imagine these kind of guys going out on boats whales with harpoons hmm. and it was like a rodeo at times, you know, this sort of mad, crazed But they weren't lust. interested in
1: conserving the species.
3: They thought there were loads of them at that point. They didn't realise that it was a very limited population so they didn't realise they were clever, they didn't know really know anything about them. The book is really about this situation which is difficult to write about because in order to start loving these animals and bonding with them and realising they're clever and they have amazing societies and they're sophisticated and they're playful and they're loyal. So to understand all of this, the only reason we understand that is that we captured them and stuck them in little awful bathtubs and watched them do tricks.
0: Yeah.
3: And that's what was happening in the 60s and 70s. They were rounding up animals, trying to capture the babies. It's actually heartbreaking when you sort of look at what they did to these animals communities these families of whales. it was
2: absolutely horrendous and jason colby's um, quite an interesting person to tell this story because his father was he worked in orca capture so presumably yes. he he gives a more balanced story
3: of of the of yes, the orca i think he does he he his father was involved though not massively but he did do some of the captures and this is kind of jason's ticket in because the guys like ted who were in the at the forefront of the captures when everyone started falling in love with the whales these capturing guys became pariahs that they didn't nobody wanted to know them they thought they were evil you know they destroyed these families they killed whales they tried to hide the fact that they'd killed whales so they'd had such bad press that none of them really wanted to talk to anyone and i think because jason's father was one of them that gave him a ticket to get in and talk to these people and, get them to open up.
1: It's Um, kind of extraordinary this is as uh, as late as the 60s which yeah, because yeah. people knew dolphins were clever before that point, did well, they?
3: Well, I think they were just discovering, actually, at that point, that dolphins were clever. What they people, were what, what
1: people were doing for millennia? I mean, they must have know, seen Harpooning
3: these... them. Yeah. Being <laughs> at a
2: respectful distance, yes. I imagine.
1: Maybe it's just very hard to look back on it, but the 60s isn't that long ago. That it seems that this no. this sort of moment of realisation could possibly have occurred no. decades before. But maybe not, not.
3: I think I what's know. extraordinary is the way that those hundreds of years of fear were overturned in, in sort of 20 years of Capturing them is it and also because they were
1: less dangerous? Because boats got bigger and safer, and so what was the how much of a risk is a killer whale to man by the seventies? Well, so. I
3: believe they were never that much of a risk. Oh, really? I the truth of it is they don't really kill people in the wild. There's sort of hard almost no stories of killer whales killing humans, except when they're kept in hideous conditions and traumatised in captivity, where they do occasionally kill their trainers. There was the movie Blackfish, yeah. Which famously told the story of one whale and what that whale had been through, and trying to sort of explain why a killer whale might then drown its trainer. That movie had an extraordinary effect on the entire industry, the SeaWorld industry, multi billion dollar industry that basically tanked
1: So I went to Sea I went to SeaWorld when I was a kid, when I was probably eight. I mean, it was fine. It was You know, you go to that show and they jump up for balls and they splash and everyone gets wet. Yeah. I don't remember, I mean, I was, I was eight, so I wasn't necessarily ethically well-equipped to sort of debate things, but it didn't feel yeah. like a very contentious thing. People just went to see it, no, didn't they? And it was a massive, no. SeaWorld in Florida is a, well, it was. Is it out it, of business yet? No,
3: it's not out of business, but it's they've been forced to shut down their orca breeding programme and phase out their captive orca what displays. What are they going to have then? Well, quite. They have been facing a lot of trouble and people have been resigning and they've lost tons of money because of blackfish and there's actually a th- sort of effect called the blackfish effect which is now studied in universities and things because it was such a kind of massive and dramatic effect on the public consciousness where people went from as we did in the sort of 70s as kids looking at these beautiful whales jumping out the water and thinking how cute went from that to realizing god you know these animals have been tormented and it's the equivalent of putting a human in a bathtub and leaving it there for the rest of your life. But that hasn't
1: happened with zoos, has it, in the same way? I mean, I know people say zoos are horrible, and I kind of think they're horrible, but has the blackfish effect happened on zoos, or do we just sort of put no. up with them?
3: Well, may, I mean, maybe what it would take is for somebody to kind of look at a specific lion yeah. and see what that lion has been through. I mean, that's what I think that's what happened really with blackfish, was... They named, you know, the individual. It was about an individual. Yeah. And once you connect
2: with an individual, you see everything completely differently. Which is um, sort of what happened with the whole Free Willy story as well, because that film made this whale a star, and the film was all about saving the whale. I mean, it's all, yes. you know, it's all in the name.
1: Saving it from what? I've seen that from... From it, captivity. So from, from a sea world type thing?
2: Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
3: They, so why they, did that
1: not have the same effect then?
3: Well, it sort of did. It didn't have as much of an effect as blackfish though it did have a big effect because they i mean, this is another it, jason's colby's pretty good actually at bringing out these crazy contradictions because free willy could only have been made because they were using a captive whale i think it was called is kaiko so they're using this poor captive whale who's stuck in a horrendous sea park in mexico And they're using all the trainers who have trained this whale, and that's how the film was made. They were filming Kaiko doing tricks. But, of course, the whole thrust of the film was this poor whale has been kept in terrible conditions. And then, after the free willy made a massive amount of money in the box office, there was a big public campaign to free Kaiko. And that did happen. Michael Jackson got involved. Michael Jackson oh, did. Brilliantly missing the point and, and saying he would pay for Kaiko to be freed if Kaiko could come and stay at Neverland. <laughs> so oh, he just that's brilliant. quite it's got good. that. But then yes, so Kaiko was actually eventually there was a big campaign and he was he was originally captured from Iceland and he was then taken back to Iceland and released. And the real whale experts were saying, you know, he may look fantastic and cute to us, but to other whales, he's a loner, he's a loser with a skin condition. Oh, <laughs> and God. the poor creature was kind of, you know, after a lifetime captivity, set out free in the Icelandic waters and basically sort of languished around, ended up in Norway, socialising with the humans who'd come to mm. see Free Willy. And then he died of, I think, pneumonia or starvation. It was just a nightmare. Oh
0: my <laughs> <laughs> none
1: of this, none of this reflects things. very well yeah. on any of the people attached to it, does well, it? Well, no, it really
3: doesn't. I mean, I think that's the, that's the really interesting thing I found about this book was that Jason Colby is he's very keen to portray these whale capturers, understandably, as as whale lovers. You know, these people are obsessed with these animals and they adore them. And he does a lot of sort of talking about that. And yet, you read it and you think, well, actually, you know, these guys were ripping one-year-old babies from their screaming mothers and harpooning people. You know, it just sort of feels like it can't be that simple. Like there must have been an element of like dollar signs in these guys' eyes motivating some pretty horrific behaviour. So I'm not really sure how it's possible to hold those two things inside you at the same time and a sort of adoration and reverence for an animal whilst you're rounding it up and And ripping it from its... Societies.
1: It's amazing that the aesthetic of it came so late. Maybe it's a bit like you how know, no one looked at the Alps until the 18th century and said, "Oh, well, that's an amazing yeah. view. <laughs> yeah. And they just sort of <laughs> head down and walk past it. And then there's suddenly a cultural awakening. Yeah. The mount, they, they look pretty. When you see a killer whale, the black and the white, and they're huge and they're sinuous in their movements, yeah. they seem beautiful. But yeah. isn't it kind of, is it, is it strange there was no awakening to that until a certain point?
3: Well, I think the thing is, probably, when you see them in the wild, I don't know, have you been... Be
1: have well, I've not been well spotting, no. So,
3: yeah, well, I've been, and you basically, most of the time, you just see it's just kind of, they're quite far
4: off, uh, and there's a just a splash in the fins.
3: <laughs> and presumably, if you were a, a fisherman, you would be trying to avoid them yeah. generally. So it's possible that generally the public didn't... I mean, that that's actually what Jason's arguing, is that the public never actually got to see how beautiful they were because they were always out there being shot by fishermen. And it was once we started to see them in captivity and realise how beautiful they were that they they caught hold of the public imagination and we began
2: to love them
3: and revere them.
2: On a on a kind of final point, what what's the prognosis? I mean, how many how many whales are still in captivity now? I think the oldest one is Lolita, who you mentioned in your piece. Lolita, Lolita, (laughs) I know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Lolita, the old whale.
2: and, And she is pretty old. She.
3: I hope she's still alive. I haven't checked since I wrote this. I wrote this a few months ago. She's pretty old. She's in Miami. And the heartbreaking thing about Lolita is they've done research because they've established that killer whales have dialects, that pods have dialects. And they've done things like play her the dialect. They know exactly who her family is. You know who her mother is, her siblings. They've played her, the dialect, and she has responded in her tank in a, in a very marked way to this dialect.
2: And there's big campaigns to release her. But I don't actually know whether that's. whether.
1: And
4: of
2: course, happened. we don't know that it wouldn't be the same as it is with, with Kaiko, where he was sort of ostracised. Yes. He didn't have the social skills to, yes. to could be completely
1: pick misguided. up the relationship. But ultimately, presuming mm. that we must be moving towards a time, maybe post Blackfish, that the only places that whales will be kept is for preservation and to keep a species alive not for leaping around does that feel like that's the kind of moment we've got to but I
3: possibly I mean I think there's about 70 of them around the world still in captivity and obviously what all the experts want is for us to start campaigning heavily to stop the pollution that is killing them because Mm. what's actually happening now in the pacific northwest is that the populations are really declining because of horrendous pollution noise pollution and particularly chinook salmon stocks so they're they're really declining and it's pretty desperate even though they're an endangered species it's pretty desperate so that's what needs to happen really is that you're
1: we, not bringing a lot of cheer here lucy but no, we should well, all, none of us we no- haven't
3: really talked about how amazing they are but they are they are incredible they're, they're matriarchal for a start which is always good and i they say are,
1: in a room of two women yes <laughs> I, I quite agree
3: they, you know they babysit for each other they have rituals and and parties and they're incredibly sociable and playful and wonderful. They have parties? Yeah, they kind of get together and and have a knees up. Do they sing? uh, (laughs) They call to each other in a wide variety of different ways. I don't know whether... Can you give us some of that? Would
2: <laughs> you like me to try? Yeah. I, could,
3: I could try. He- <laughs> yeah. I did spend a lot of time looking at orca cams. You can look at an orca cam, which is set up in the Pacific Northwest, where basically you just sit and look at a grainy screen for hours and then eventually like one might go past. It's very exciting. This afternoon, li-
1: taking yeah, I hope people listening. That's that's a good thing we can do. Is just appreciate yes. them a little bit appreciate more. Appreciate them, yes. Don't go to Sea World.
3: And don't go to Sea World, definitely. That's a good yes. lesson,
1: Lucy. I can thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, we've all heard of Samuel and Sotabed Peeps, the diarist, the survivor of the Great Fire of London, a rogerer and a roisterer, although perhaps with a more unpleasant side than those terms might suggest. John Evelyn was a diarist, of course, but he's been largely overshadowed by his peer. He was also a translator, a political writer and a keen gardener. A new biography by John Dixon Hunt has now appeared. Its very title, A Life of Domesticity, as subdued as its subject's reputation. Evelyn and Pepys were friends as well as contemporaries, and Margaret Wills has written a book about them called The Curious World of Samuel Pepys and John Evelyn. To talk us through the two men's similarities and differences is the TLS's very own life writer, Ruth Skurr, author of the formidable biography of another man of the age who we might get to, John Aubrey. She's on the line now. Hello, Ruth. Hi, Sig. Right, why has everyone heard of Pepys's diary and not Evelyn's?
5: Well the diaries are very different in tone and composition and much of Evelyn's is retrospective, it's deeply religious. Um, Uh. He does record interesting events, some of them really memorable like the first tasting of the pineapple at court or Nell Gwynne leaning over a garden wall to flirt with Charles II, but the tone throughout is quite formal and to the point, whereas Pepys's diary is much more vivid and contemporaneous, some of it written in code, very intimate it's full of gossip and indiscretion. So I'd say it's easy to see why people find Peeps more accessible than Evelyn. What was Evelyn
1: doing it for? He, so Peeps was presumably doing it for his own amusement, partially. Or...
5: Well, Peeps only kept his diary for a decade. Now, it's an interesting question as to to why Peeps was keeping the diary. And Evelyn actually wrote... I mean, it's almost like autobiography. It's retrospective. It, it covers the whole of his life. And there's only when you get to a certain point that he's actually recording events as they happen.
1: Is it for posterity?
5: I think so. Evelyn's not writing in code. I think it's a, like a, a journal, a record of events, people he's seen. He also has an account of the fire of London in there. So you do see the society and the politics through him, just as you do through peeps. But they're very, very different in tone.
1: We had a piece, I don't know if you remember this in the paper, relatively recently with the headline Samuel Creeps which is uh, it's about a book called, called him Society's First Sex Offender. Is this an example of us trying to um, judge him by the standards of our day rather than his, mm. or was he always... I mean, is he fair dinkum, a terrible man?
5: Well, I doubt he was the first Sex offender, and yeah. um, certainly wasn't the only one. But the TLS reviewer Roberta Klimt pointed out that all the information about Peeps's sexual indiscretions comes from Peeps's own diary, and that's an interesting fact in, in itself. As we were saying, you know, what were his intentions for the diary? Did he want later generations to know that he couldn't keep his hands to himself or his cock in his trousers? Who was the diary for? But also, we have to ask, what do we as readers want from the diary? And again, the TLS reviewer pointed out that if we're going to excuse Pepys on grounds that he lived a long time ago when sexual customs and manners were very different from our own, then we have to think about that too. You know, who gets a retrospective pardon and why? I was looking back through the TLS archive and I found a wonderful review from 1998 by Lyndall Roper of a book about women's experience in early modern England. And she describes in the review how peeps's wife elizabeth wrote her own account of their tempestuous marriage and peeps tore it up in front of her when she refused to destroy it herself now i'd say that was pretty terrible but it doesn't mean we should tear up and stop reading peeps's diary obviously not
1: do you think his standards are kind of his behavior would be bad by any normative moral standards rather than trying to make it time specific would he have been ashamed of what he did or was that actually just what you did if you were a man in his position
5: i think at that level i can't i can't say but i do i mean he does write in code in the diary those experiences and certainly i mean i think there are elements of Shame. The author of one of the books that I've reviewed, Margaret Willis, she talks about the double standards he had for wealthy women and for women who he saw as belonging to a social class below him—domestic servants, etc. It's a complicated set of of mores for the for the time, and I think I don't believe that we can't say, well, this was an imposition of power on women of, of the time of, of course we can say that it doesn't excuse it if everybody else is doing it but I think we also have to recognize that it's a world away from from what we would understand
2: and I suppose in a sense as well we would we would have an an idea of how Pepys felt about what he was getting up to and whether it was just sort of normal and, and therefore he wouldn't You know, he he would just write it to document it for himself, or whether he was bragging about it socially. We might get that from John Evelyn, perhaps. I mean, was Evelyn aware of Pepys's philandering? (laughs)
5: Almost certainly not. I mean, I, Evelyn is such a different character, and I find it impossible to imagine <laughs> that they sat down over a pint to discuss what Peeps had been up to. No, I, absolutely not. I, I think their interests were in very different... Apparently,
2: Peeps found Evelyn absolutely hilarious. Well, yes,
5: but... I...
1: <laughs> well, tell, tell us about Evelyn.
5: Would many people know who he is these days? Well, I think his diary is absolutely wonderful. I mean, if you're interested in gardening, then you know a lot about it. If you're interested in very early environmental awareness, then you know about Evelyn. You make
1: a very large claim about his gardening book, Ruth.
5: Yeah, we'll come on to that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, this is how very, very different Evelyn is. I mean, Evelyn had a very calm marriage, you know, 60 years' worth of it. And at one point, he became infatuated with a younger woman at the court. And he cast that friendship in completely spiritual terms. Now, it still annoyed his his wife, but no one would have believed then or, or now that some kind of Physical affair was taking place. I mean Evelyn was the kind of person who worried that he was sinning against God by being so proud of his house and garden and that, uh, that... isn 't
1: that exactly the sort of person that behind the curtains is doing something horrific
5: <laughs> no i don 't think so, not not. <laughs> Not in Evelyn's own terms. I, I really don't. I mean, I think you know that's Roy- always a
1: quiet guy, very moralistic, you know, man of God. They're the people no. you've got to watch out for.
5: No, Where, now when the Everyman <laughs> you're not edition- having this, are you,
1: Ruth? Me, I'm me, not me, having me, it. Me no.
5: <laughs> <even>. <laughs> Sorry. When I reviewed for the TLS the Everyman edition of the diary, Evelyn's diary, when it came out, and Roy Strong wrote an introduction and. He said in that that one of the things, the real barriers to understanding Evelyn for us is his piety, is the way that religion is completely infused through his life and his sensibility. And I think that's right.
1: My problem is that as soon as you say someone is pious, I mean, a, mm. it, has a, it has a modern connotation which is not positive, even sure. if you that, as soon as you say that is a pious man. I'm immediately suspicious. I immediately think it's a front. It must be a front for something.
5: Well, I think that might be projecting backwards. In, I mean, yeah. Evelyn, for example, his passion for gardening is that he thinks God was the first gardener. He really, really does run through all of all of his life, which I think we have to accept that that might be okay. hard to access.
2: Let's talk about Evelyn then as, as a gardener, as a, an environmentalist. Mm. Slightly an aside here, do we owe him
5: for the green belt around London or if I miss miss Well he would be that. delighted <laughs> about it he wanted that but I mean also he knew in his time what we're very concerned with now which is you know people are, are being made seriously seriously ill by the, the quality of the air and he really wanted to try and raise awareness of that, to stop people cutting down the trees because that was going to make the situation worse. I and mean, he had all sorts of really innovative ideas to He was very aware of the, the degeneration of soil wasn't he? Mm, absolutely because well, he's gardening on the banks of the Thames in the mini ice age <laughs> so that's very hard to do and he travelled in Italy and he, he wants to bring lots of those Italian gardening ideas back and, and and he's trying to, to achieve this on the banks of the Thames. And there's this wonderful time you know, he has to go to the Royal Society and explain what this severe winter has done in his garden to his box hedges, etc.
1: I mean, presumably that's a London problem rather than a problem in many other places. That Presumably, when well, you got out of London, it was all still subsistency. still.
5: No, a... Evelyn was very... Well, so, Wotton and OK, it's, it's, sorry, it's not very far away, but it, it was called... Uh, wooden house after the trees surrounding it and when he finally inherited it because he was the second son not the first he was really dismayed to see how much deforestation had taken place and he said it's almost denuded that you know it doesn't deserve its name and he immediately starts replanting them because of course it's a great naval power at england at that time so they're cutting down the trees in order to to make the ship
1: okay let's talk about your claim ruth yeah Uh, about the book the book Elysium Britannicum which I think we've all read (laughs) according to you will (laughs) remain relevant while much else has become dust
5: yes well this is wishful thinking on my part perhaps (laughs) however however one of the reasons I think it's so important is that I actually think it's much more than a book it's this huge archive it's a vast Compilation of information about gardening that Evelyn collected going right back through literature through his own experience, his understanding of of Europe and gardening in, in, in the ancient world through the text, and he was constantly adding to it and so in that sense, there is a, a published edition of it so it 's a very difficult thing to actually publish, which is an, another reason why some scholars think you know evelyn 's never been accorded his his proper p- place in the history of gardening but it's there in the British Library and it is an absolutely phenomenal collection of information. It's like a
1: commonplace book of nature.
5: Yeah you could see it like that even it can be a bit chaotic there's no doubt about that. He keeps on throughout his lifetime he, adding and adding and adding to it and trying to reorganise parts of it. So, so it's there almost like a kind of paper museum but on the subject. Of, of horticulture.
1: And where does Aubrey fit into this? Because you are, of course, the great Aubrey figure.
5: Well, Aubrey worked in a similar way. So some of Aubrey's texts are exactly like that. The Monumenta Britannica is an, another paper archive. That one's you know, all about the, the ancient stones and remains in Britain. And like Evelyn, Aubrey keeps on adding to it. And wonderfully, Evelyn comments on Aubrey's perambulation when he walks around Surrey collecting up information. He sends the manuscript to Evelyn and Evelyn generously comments throughout. So they're working together to collect up that information and make sure it's recorded for the future.
1: So is there a kind of a buddy movie that could be written about Pepys, Aubrey and Evelyn?
5: I suppose so, I, I, yeah. And, are you, and are, you the,
1: are you the woman to write it, Ruth's girl? I think
5: quite possibly not. No, I, I mean, you know. I've like an idea I of fed- that, don't you? I'd certainly watch it.
1: Yeah, you can imagine Peeps and, you know, you could Peeps, there's this dark side to Peeps and there's Aubrey and Evelyn sort of talking, wandering around yeah. beautiful environmental concerns, I think.
2: Yeah. It's a tough sell, I would say.
1: Well, well, I learned from Ruth Singh that Anthony Pohl wrote a biography John Aubrey and his friends, so he's yes. kind of done a buddy. There's a there's a text, is there a buddy text that we could yeah. go off?
2: Yeah, you'd look so. into all of the the environmental anxieties very now, obviously. I very suppose. now, yeah, me too. I mean, in a poem, in a, a post, yeah, a
1: bit of me too, bit of yeah. climate change. Yeah. Am I talking into this at all, Ruth?
5: No, I'm sorry, not. <laughs> no, I think I mean I think it's really fascinating to think about who, you know, who are the peeps and Evelyn of
1: our time? I mean, who's gonna no be... One. The, it's all yeah? ruined, is it because so no, one, no one keeps a diary anymore, do they? Everyone, we could hear the Facebook accounts of a bunch of show-offs maybe that would be the equivalent in our time you know, the Facebook transcripts of three famous show-offs <sighs> Does that sound tempting <sighs> it's to pretty that, gloomy
5: <laughs> note to end
1: the year on, isn't so. it? It's a gloomy yeah. but we've talked about this before, haven't we, that biography as a whole is based on Private correspondence, diaries, mm-hmm. and the like, which are effectively no longer a feature of the modern world, mm. and, and it does beg a question: that what what would that look like in the modern world? And I don't know what the answer to that. It is. Quite gleam, isn't
5: it? I don't know. We'll see, won't we? I mean, I think the impulse to put experience into words and to try and put them in a form where that lasts and outlives the life of the person writing is, is very, very deep, very, very strong. So it might have to change. Genre change the you know technology or whatever the medium through which we we do that. I mean, we have this Peeps diary because of Evelyn persuading him. You know, you've got to make provision for for your library and therefore the manuscripts as well and and, and the diary after your death. And Peeps did that absolutely brilliantly. Evelyn, unfortunately didn't take his own advice so Evelyn's books have been dispersed they've been sold by his descendants he wanted money whereas Pete's library is all there in Magdalen College an amazing collection of of music and even the bookcases he designed to have his books and his papers stored in are are all there
1: you're striking an optimistic note you think it's not the end of end of days the civilization will persist
5: I
2: hope so. I would say thank God uh, that you, Ruth, are our consultant life uh, life writing editor
5: rather than Stig.
1: <laughs> Look, I've just come up with what I think is a winning modern buddy movie. The buddy
5: movie, which I think <laughs> seems to
1: tick Breeds all sorts of into into the... all sorts of contemporary boxes. <laughs> and I expected Ruth Scare as our life writer and person who likes to animate and energise this period would we have been all on on board, but no.
5: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Look, Stig, I'll give it some thought. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I accept that promise, Ruth. Thank you very much. Let's okay, go, thank, you.
5: thank you. I'm serious, no?
1: No. <laughs> I mean,
2: maybe. All right. I'm still enjoying the um, there being some irony in uh, in John Evelyn's book, a, a book about the importance of preserving trees. <laughs>
1: in, a, in a paper book, yeah. <laughs> it's like people who go on planes to talk about climate change, is Yeah. It? I presume there must be some things you just have to accept and move on from, otherwise you'd be so immured by fear of uh, being too ironic that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to Ruth Skirr and Lucy Atkins make sure you are subscribing to the TLS because we've got some corking editions coming up next week's our Christmas special which includes Dave Eggers Mick Jagger Turkey Dinners, Arts of the Year and more and we'll be talking about it on this podcast with a whole disreputable cast of TLS editors until then from Thea and from me goodbye